Hello, I'm Richard Sargent, and this is Faith in Action, a podcast about how faith affects the way we live and work today. Almost all of us spend our days immersed in the cultures of the world, and those cultures tell brilliant stories with subtlety, realism, imagination. So how should faith and culture relate? What does faith have to say about Game of Thrones, Bake Off, veganism, Love Island, extreme sports? adult colouring books, Brexit, whatever. This is an old question and one that's been poured over by scholars over the years. But there's a new book on the subject called Plugged In by Dr Daniel Strange, who is the director at Oak Hill Theological College. I thought the book was a breath of fresh air into the question of faith and culture because of the number of practical examples it gives about how Christians might relate their faith to the surrounding culture and how people outside the church might become interested in the entanglement of the stories in the world with the story of the gospel and of faith. So I'm delighted to welcome Dan to the podcast. Dan, where did the idea for the book come from? Well, I've been teaching um, uh, students who are, uh, many of whom are going to go into uh, full-time Christian ministry for over uh, 15 years. And there's a course that I teach called um, cultural analysis or cultural exegesis how do we un understand cultural texts around us and by text I don't just mean written texts I mean the, everything that we do and we play and uh, the decisions that, that we make about how we live our lives and I think it's crucial for those going uh, into a church leadership that they they know how to understand uh, the world around them that they're not phased by that and then to be able to help those uh, under their care so I've um, I've been thinking about this for a while. I suppose I'm quite inquisitive as a human being. Um, my background is one of um, being a theologian who especially has looked at Christianity's relationship to other religions. My uh, grandparents were Hindu. My dad was um, from Guyana in uh, South America originally. And so I've kind of moved across into this area of just understanding culture more generally. Um, and what does it mean? Uh, what does culture mean? What does it mean to say we live in a secular culture? How does the history of Christianity impact upon that? And it was that variety of your your background, your growing up, that gave you the interest in, in culture as opposed to all of the other subjects that tend to get taught at theological college? Yeah, because I, I think um, understanding God's word is crucial, but understanding the world uh, in which we live uh, as well. Famously, the, the reformer uh, John Calvin starts his huge uh, book called The Institute saying there's knowledge of God and there's knowledge of the self and which one comes first is hard to determine. And I think that idea of uh, the, the two are, are mutually reinforce each other. Um, and so uh, I've always been interested in trying to help students uh, understand uh, through the lens of a biblical worldview, and we can talk about worldview in a bit, what does the world uh, look like? And just for clarity, what is this word culture all about? It seems to get used in different ways. What do you mean yeah. by it? Well, I mean, famously, one of the most uh, famous uh, cultural theorists, Ray Raymond Williams, says it's one of the most difficult words to define in the English language. I still think there's there's three ways, at least three ways, that we use it interchangeably. Um, there's the understanding of culture being that of civilization. Um, so it's uh, to, uh, the refined state of, of manners. Probably it's um, you know listening to Radio 4 rather than listening to Radio 1. That might be one way of doing it. So culture is civilization. I think in the, in the 19th century, then, the word 
um, becomes more associated with anthropology. So now, um, whereas before people, some people were cultured and some weren't, now everyone has a culture um, and uh, anthropology starts to investigate that. Of course, uh, every culture has something good to contribute to humanity, but some might have more to contribute than others. And so that's the rise of, I suppose, a distinction between what might be called high culture and low culture. And uh, that's seen across uh, many um, kind of anthropological studies. And I suppose more recently, culture has been become associated with cultural studies in the university, which is um, often associated with the, uh, the science of signs, semiotics. Um, and so uh, everything that human beings do and make are cultural and less on the prescription of whether it's good or bad and more on have you accurately described the culture that we are in. Um, but I think we still use those terms. Sometimes we use culture to mean civilization if you're being really cultured. Uh, sometimes we use it just to, to describe what human beings uh, are, are doing. Sometimes in a prescriptive way, things that we ought to or not to be doing, but just sometimes it's just describing everything that, mm. that we do. And I suppose it's that last definition of trying to understand that um, everything that human beings do and make and make a home for themselves is meaningful. I suppose my interest is in everything we do is meaningful. That's why I balk a little bit about this distinction between high culture and low culture mm. or high culture and pop culture. Um, maybe I'm just satisfying my, my own interests. Uh, but I do think as human beings, we are culture makers um, now, that relates to me being a Christian and believing that we're made in God's image. God is a speaker and a maker. He creates uh, men and women in his own image who speak and make. We naturally make things. We have a plan. We have a purpose. Oh, well, that definition ought to reassure listeners of Radio 1 as well as Radio 4. Indeed. <laughs> uh, I wonder, what should then the engagement between uh, faith and culture be? I, your book has a method, a set of approaches that might guide us. Could you summarise that? Yeah, so I think it's the, the recognition that as human beings, we all see the world through a particular lens, what, what we call a, a worldview. And we all have a worldview. Um, and we all have, I would say, uh, commitments or uh, to various things. We might not call it faith, but we certainly have commitments. We all have um, things that we want in the world, views on what a human being is, um, views on uh, what's right and wrong, views on how do we know. Um, all of those are, I suppose, worldview questions. And so uh, part of the, the first stage of doing any cultural analysis is trying to work out what's going on un, un, um, under the surface. If you imagine a worldview is like a tree with a root and fruit, we, are, we only often see the fruit because we make decisions every day about mm. how we want, what do we believe about education, which party are we going to vote for, how am I going to spend my leisure time. But I would say underneath those consistently are views that we have about the world, cherished commitments that often are beneath the surface, just like roots are, mm. but the root and the fruit are connected. And I think if you trace back these to these roots, you realise that historically and philosophically there are worldviews that people have and I would argue that uh, Christianity is one such worldview it's a way of viewing the world um, but there are many on offer uh, as well and they have their own stories their own narratives no one is without a worldview so part of my work as a theologian uh, is to try and get behind the scenes to get people to see the worldview and how do we do that how do we see those roots under uh, under the surface yes so I, I, the point I was going to make is that it's very um, 
it can be very countercultural, as in we don't see often we don't see our worldview because we see with our worldview. It's a bit. I always make the illustration of um, I, I wear glasses, and uh, um, when I get a new pair of glasses for the first few days, it's very annoying because you can see the frame. After a while, you get used to it, and then you just see with the glasses. You don't look at the frames. And worldviews are, are, are a bit like that. The way that we discover where worldviews come from, I think, is in a not in an annoying way, but we do what a three-year-old does. We just ask why. Where do you get that from? And if you trace back from fruit, you know, what's your view on on Brexit or what's your view on uh, um, artificial intelligence or whatever any of these issues? If you keep on asking why, mm. um, you'll get back to a point where you'll you'll start tracing back. Well, that's because I believe humans are like this. Why do you believe that? Well, that's because I believe. And when you get back to the place where you can go back no further, you come to those cherished commitments which are called uh, presuppositions, which are basic, um, which you can't justify because they are the the lens through which you see everything else. Mm. Um, and my work here is to try and um, help Christians see that we are to see the world through what we believe about, um, especially who, who the Lord Jesus Christ is, uh, but that people who have different worldviews, they have similar commitments which are equally cherished and people are committed to things. Uh, again, they may not talk about it in terms of faith, but if you push them, they have hopes and dreams and fears and they are that's part of a worldview uh, as well. That's fascinating, Dan, and I wonder if you could give an example, perhaps something in popular culture that might reveal some underpinnings that maybe faith has something to say about. So, I mean, I've been looking at the issue of uh, superstition. There's... there's um. In, in the sociology of religion, so sociologists who think about religion, um, there's a kind of a huge debate that goes on as to, uh, well, one, what does it mean to be secular? Uh, and, and two, whether the West especially has become disenchanted. And I think there are a number of sociologists that would argue, even in very sophisticated ways, some of you may have heard of a, a, a thinker called Charles Taylor, who argues that, yes, the West has become disenchanted now. He, he kind of the cause of that for him is historical actually he, he seems to go back to the Reformation I'd have I'd query that but his view is that yes there's in many ways even though belief is around um, he talks more about the secular being not so much about whether people believe or not but what is what is believable believability and he says that it's uh, faith is much more um, contested and contestable but there are others like the the historian uh, Rodney Stark who says some very strong things about people like Taylor to say all the evidence that he has seen and um, evidence that's been done would show that actually um, we're not we're not disenchanted we're differently enchanted and that yes traditional Christianity or traditional world religions may be uh, declining but it, uh, all the research seems to show that people are as enchanted by things and um, people have all kinds of superstitions. Mm. And when you start looking into this, it's very interesting. There's uh, two examples. Um, I had a student who used to work in an office where you never say the phrase, the phones are quiet this, this afternoon. As soon as you say that, um, people get quite cross. And these are people who have no time for, for religion or Christianity or whatever. But the idea is, is that there is some kind of malevolent force. If you say the phones are, uh, are quiet, that will make a busy shift. And I laughed at this and thought, this is crazy. But then um, we have a policeman who's uh, studying here at college, and they said, it, it, it's true, on a, on a shift uh, over the radio, you never say the word quiet, you say the letter Q, because if you say quiet, you know you'll start getting calls. 
Uh, and then I realised that this was everywhere. And actually, strangely, I came across some journals. There's a there's a journal in the in the Royal College of Surgeons where I think it's a spoof. I think it's an April Fool's joke, which does a we did a quality control test on whether saying the word Q would make the shift busy or not. But what's interesting is that other articles have then referenced this article. <laughs> So there's this whole issue of superstition. Um, the other example is the Tottenham Hotspur manager, Maurizio Pochettino. If you remember, if you think about the the multi-million pounds um, that go into the running of a club, the science, the precision. Uh, well, the week before the uh, the Champions League final, there's an article on uh, Pochettino, who's been who's a very um, who believes in what he calls a energy universale. Uh, this universal energy and so he has a bowl of lemons in his office and when people come in who have negative energy he believes the negative energy goes into the lemons and he changes the lemons every four or five days uh, and he made a joke about you know Daniel Levy the, the chairman he has to change it even more often than that but once you start looking you realize that um, this kind of enchantment mm. is everywhere and um, for all the kind of hardcore atheists that you find uh, I think that many many just normal people find it very difficult to think, in the words of the John Lennon song, that above us is only sky. And that search for transcendence, I think, is part of what it means to be human. It's clearly a common phenomenon in society to still have some level of, of superstition or, yeah. or enchantment. But there do seem some groups, some commentators might class them as religion's cultured despisers, that pride themselves on a rationality, uh, a rationalism. That yes perhaps uh, through the lens of science, uh, abhors the notion of, of superstition and with it religion, uh, the, the magical thinking that might be associated with it. I wondered whether for scientists, for rationalists, whether you've seen yeah. any of that uh, element of enchantment remaining. Or... Yes, well, I, th I think at that level, obviously there are ideologies and there are ways of viewing the world which would say that naturalism or materialism, and by materialism I don't mean going to buy a Gucci bag, I mean the material is all that there is. Um, there are people who, lots of people who would espouse that. I'd say two things to that. One, actually, and there's been some recent work on this, uh, even some of the, the the key pioneers of science, it offers, many of the, the leading scientists were still into very quite strange what, strange practices. Mm. I think um, the relationship between science and magic has been, is a, if you look into it, is, ve is a very close one. So mm. that's the first thing. I think also... Um, uh, because I don't believe that nature is all that there is, because I do believe in a transcendent, because I do believe that we are more than simply, you know, $12 of material. Um, I do think that even though people may espouse that kind of worldview, uh, their lives will often betray that in terms of the need for relationships, uh, concepts of of love and, and fear, um, that when you when you think about it are uh, cannot simply be explained naturalistically, mm. um, and that's what I'd always want to be trying to push. Uh, that I think it's well, it's very hard to live just as a materialist, and it's very hard to live as a nihilist who just believes there is no hope. I think we, uh, we 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 don't do that in our lives. And so you've exposed a common core with superstition or, or enchantment that perhaps both faith and other worldviews have. How do you forge the connection? How would people of faith speak more eloquently to connect the story of the gospel to that sense of 
latent enchantment that people feel. I think there's always a connection between the false ways of viewing the world that we have and the true world that I believe uh, as a Christian has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And my task, I suppose, is to try and make those links. I mean, in the book, I talk about how the gospel always confronts every culture but always connects with every culture as well. And this phrase called subversive fulfilment, the gospel always subverts, but in a sense, it always fulfills as well. There's always connections. So people's hopes and dreams and desires, even though people are looking for it in in the wrong place, uh, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the answer that people are both looking for and running away from at the same time. You mentioned sentimentalism. What's going on with sentimentalism in our culture and what should our perspective on that be? Yes. So I think, I mean, there's, it, it's interesting because I, I do think there is a a British trait that is can be towards the more cynical. So I think we, we struggle as a nation more with sentimentality maybe than other cultures. Yeah. But I do think we are becoming a much more sentimentalised culture. And you see it everywhere. And again, whenever I give these examples, it makes me sound that I'm just like a, a miserable kind of Victor Meldrew, <laughs> one foot in the grave figure. But for example, I, I go and watch West Ham United. That's my football club. Every week there seems to be a, a, a minute silence for something or mm. applause for something. And sentimentality being... Um, Jeremy Begbie, the theologian, defines it really well as being three things. that The trivialisation of evil, uh, the failure to take costly action, and maybe that the essence is emotional self-indulgence. Sentimentality is being emotional about your emotions. Mm. And it is selfish because at the end of the day, the other person is there for your gratification, not because you care about them. And when you see that, you start seeing that all over the place. Um, especially in terms of public sentimentality. I mean, the example that I've used before, which I still think is, is very relevant, is just what happened around that tragedy at Grenfell Tower and how the reaction was and how a public outcry for something immediately can simplify things that are very complex and everything becomes black and white, very easy to sort out. So um, you're, you're, the response you would encourage is stop crying and do something? There needs to be a appropriate emotion to situations. I mean, we talk about this in terms of public sentimentality when we see a, a TV presenter that we grew up with who dies, and even though we've never met them, we can sometimes be as emotional. And I think th- th- there is a thinking through about appropriateness and restraint. I think that's one issue of sentimentality. We've forgotten what it means to be restrained. Now, by that, I don't mean... The that, stiff upper the lip. Stiff up, I don't mean the stiff upper lip, but I do mean a, a, appropriate responses... And I I think we are sentimental in the sense of we want some kind of experience sometimes. If if as human beings we don't know who we are and we feel like, as one writer says, kind of a, a ghost in the machine, when we have emotions and especially visceral emotions, it wakes the ghost up. And, I mean, I would put those kinds of experiences, you know, the stadium experience, the concert experience, being together, where you're more than the sum of the parts and the transcendence of, for example, after the Manchester bombing, being able to go and sing somewhere over the rainbow. Not just a brain on a stick. Now, I don't think think anyone probably thinks singing somewhere over the rainbow at that moment is going to defeat ISIS. But there's something about being together and that connectedness of being part of something bigger – just in the way that I think extreme sports have that visceral waking the ghost, mm. bringing, you know, this, it makes us alive. And when we have it and we lose it, we want it again. It's fascinating. And what about some media? What, what have you been 
watching and thinking about through the lens of cultural analysis and shows like Game of Thrones, you, you mentioned in the book, Love Island, Bake Off. What do you make of these, uh, other than perhaps enjoying them on a, a superficial level, some of them? Yeah. Uh, I mean, ba Bake Off's fascinating because I think there's a real, there's a kind of a romantic streak. If romanticism was a reaction to the French Revolution and the bloodshed that had been caused in the name of reason, the Romantics did some strange things. I mean, the Romantics used to build ruins because it looks back to a time. And I do think when you see the Gingham, when you see Bake Off, what's going on in Westminster at the moment or all the terrible things that we hear, to know that, yes, there's a there's a kind of an idealised Somewhere there is an English country exactly, house. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's in some ways, you know, something like Test Match Special is like that. You think, this is my safe place. Whatever's going on, I know I, I'll be happy with Test Match Special. And Bake Off's like that, as is as are all, all the other spin-offs from Bake Off in terms of we've seen pottery... There is that, and and you know it's the the equivalent of, you know, moleskin as a brand, or mm. there's that the the kind of the artisan, and I think that can be traced back to a, a romanticism which looks back. If if modernism looked forwards and said, um, there's a difference between us and them. We are they are them. They are old. We are progressing. I think romanticism wants to yearn to go back. And if that's the analysis of the underpinning ideas, what would then the connection between faith and that romanticism be? Would uh, around a water cooler uh, conversations <laughs> about Bake Off uh, be transfigured into something connecting to faith? Yeah, so I, I think there's there's a recognition, isn't there, that there is a world that we would want that we don't have. And I mean that's classically been understood. I mean the classic, uh, what is it, um, uh, sensukt or yeah, sordards, the idea of, of this kind of well, about, I suppose a utopia, uh, some kind of world which we want. So that's the first thing that we're yearning for it. I think the second thing though is not to pour water on it, but realise that this is not reality as it is. I mean in the book I talk about the the, the issue of zombies. Um, zombies are, are not classically even in zombie horror. Uh, the directors who have used zombies, the films aren't aren't about zombies. They're all uh, for all kinds of political issues. Um, and the thing that I I find challenging is um, even in a dystopian world, uh, one of the reasons we're attracted to watching those kinds of programs is wouldn't it be great to live in a world where there wasn't any law? I could make up my own rules. And there's something very appealing to my autonomy there, um, even in dystopia. Um, and I think that that's why we're attracted to those kinds of games. And there's all kinds of themes underneath there. So whether mm. it's themes of uh, longing or um, what is a human being. I don't know, have you come across any media uh, films or, or maybe just in, in the real world, the, the culture within technology, within financial services, maybe epitomised by shows like uh, Silicon Valley and uh, Billions would yes, be a, yeah. a, a film. What, what well, do you I mean, make Billions of these? is fascinating. I mean, I, I don't, there's very few shows that I kind of am really addicted to in that sense, but there's something about Billions. And I, I watch Billions and I do not understand most of what's going on. I've got, <laughs> no, I am, I am, when it comes to kind of, I, I, I try to do, I do a course here called Public Theology where I get students to write, to think a Christian view of things. And when it comes to economics, I've read so many books for theologians engaging with economics and it still means nothing for me. But there's something about billions. But yes, I think at a superficial level, it's, um, well, it's not about the money. It's about the, it's about the relationships. Yeah. Again, um, there's all kinds of themes there in terms of power. 
and how power works, whether that's the kind of sadomasochistic stuff that some of the mm. characters in or it's the sheer opulence or the sheer kind of wealth creation. Um, but I think that show, again, is is very much about relationships often that don't mm. satisfy and uh, power dynamics that are so Im- important. I mean, often the issue of... Um, materialism and by that i do mean the kind of money now uh it's not really about wealth accumulation is it it's what are the things underneath that and it's either to do with power it's to do with comfort and those are deep-seated drives that mm. human beings have dan that's fascinating and there are so many other examples that that we could touch on brexit we, we've hardly mentioned brexit um the papers are, are full of nothing else at the moment i wonder perhaps zooming out a bit what what is the church's place within contemporary British culture at the moment? It's easy to think of it as marginalised, and, mm. and yet you know, mm. still there are so many ways in which it's deep-rooted. How is the church connecting to yeah. British culture at the moment? So I think more more culturally, I mean, I, I often with students make this juxtaposition of the tension that we're in at the moment. On the one hand, in 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 our unwritten constitution, in the coronation ceremony, the Queen in our lifetime, is, was given a Bible and said, this is the most precious thing this world affords. Uh, this is royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. So there's still a recognition that the Bible has played a significant part in what we call um, the culture that we live in. Mm. On the other hand, I remember a few years ago, the anniversary of the King James Bible, the professor at Leicester University who was curating it said that he'd been kind of terrified when he was doing a seminar and no one had heard of the figure of Moses when it came up in the seminar apart from a Muslim student who said it sounds a bit like Musa so we have this tension where I still think there are even though even though we do increasingly live in a post-Christendom society there are still many things that I think we cherish in our culture that are there because of um, the Christian heritage Mm. and I think as Christians, we're proud and embarrassed about that at the same time. We're mm. so worried about an imperialism that can be very un- unhelpful. On the other hand, I think there needs to be a recognition uh, of the worldview that's underlying um, still those things that we cherish in our culture. Mm. I think for the church, I think it's a great opportunity in the sense that if one of the issues that we're often told, and I, do, I, I believe it's true because of the fragmentation of culture, is the issue of uh, loneliness. You know, I do park run every week. And, and I've had students, I've had at least four or five essays on Parkrun that students have done. And if you look at what's behind Parkrun, yes, it's a run, but it's the social aspect. It's the going after and having time afterwards, those spaces that people have to be together. Um, and I think the church has an amazing message of people coming from all different kinds of backgrounds, people who wouldn't normally meet together. The church is that unique body um, and people who are lonely and people who are looking for meaning, people who are looking for connection, I think they find it in in Jesus Christ, in the good news, in him. But also, how do we see that now? We see it in the church. Mm. Community for everyone, whether you can run 5K or yes, not. Yes. I, I wonder if people outside the church want to know what faith has to say on, on cultural topics, where should they go? Where do you find the most provocative, interesting uh, cultural commentators from a perspective of faith are yeah so i mean i think that there, there's lots of um uh, uh think tanks and uh, organizations i think of the london institute for contemporary christianity uh, or uh, the jubilee center or, or theos i mean they, they all put things uh, slightly differently there's lots of good uh, increasingly good number of podcasts that you can listen to or i think there's think christian i would say 
go and get plugged in because it does try to give a method as to how you, how we might understand culture with some examples. And for people inside the church, other than yeah, going to get plugged in, excellent, excellent. <laughs> Thank you. I, I wonder how should they practice? Yeah, well, I mean, I make the point in the book, I liken my role to be like a football manager who didn't have a very good playing career but likes thinking about the game. And uh, I will know the examples I give in, in my book are all students' e essays that they have done for me. And I think it is practice. And the beginning, it is a bit clunky and it will be artificial. And my own children say to me, oh, Dad, you're not going to get me to kind of, you know, make notes on a film or whatever. And that it, I want us to enjoy entertainment. I want us to enjoy God's creation. But I think we need to engage critically. Um, and my dream, I suppose, is people getting uh, plugged in or other books like this and meeting together and saying, do you know what, we're going to sit down and we're going to go through these steps and we are going to think, what does it look like from a Christian point of view about what we've something that's happened this week in the news or something that we've done? And Dan, another cultural phenomenon we've perhaps seen in recent years is, is the notion of woke, wokey, the social and racial justice concerns, particularly perhaps among young people. Do you see this as a cultural fruit that has roots that are not yeah. so obvious? So I think the, the recognition, first of all, that we are located beings who have a history, who have a past, who have an identity, I think is crucial. The need, from a Christian point of view, to recognise uh, where there is in, injustice, the care for the marginalised and the oppressed, I think are all very strong Christian themes. I think where where we need to be careful is where those identities become all-consuming. Mm. And if we've lost our sense of identity being defined by God, then we will try and find our own identity. And I just don't think it's stable enough. I think our identity or my identity is not simply um, my ethnicity or my sex or my gender or my nation. If we think that that is our ultimate identity, then I think we're in trouble because I think that is taking something, those good things, and the things that we need to recognise, mm. but as soon as we elevate those to our primary identity, um, then I think it can create the divisions that, that we are seeing and mm. the fragmentation. And Dan, it would be remiss not to ask about perhaps one of the biggest cultural fractures of the day around Brexit, around Remainers and Leavers, around cosmopolitanism and the sort of localism and rootedness that might define more traditional communities. What do you think that faith and the church has to say that might help to bring the country back together in, in some form after whatever happens with Brexit? Yeah, so I think um, any kind of ism, uh, an ideology, again, if that is our central way in which we define ourselves, I don't believe, and I don't believe as a Christian, that that is my primary identity. They are important things, but they're not ultimate things. And I think putting them into proportion is important. I, I do think in the Brexit question, again, and I, I'm going to sound like a crack record here, but the issue of identity is important. And I really I think part of what is going on here is a real ambiguity, especially in um, the UK, to understand who we are. I always remember there was a series on Channel 4 a few years ago on, on, for example, the white working class. And it was a whole series of programmes where he was charting, for example, the white working class um, post Stephen Lawrence. The white working class have gone from the salt of the earth to the scum of the earth in one generation. And that sense of what does it mean to be English? And I still think 
that haunts the Brexit decision. Uh, where are we going to look to for our values? Mm. Is is it going to be Europe or is it going to be, for example, back to common law more? And there's a tension there. Mm. And I think both um, the right and left at that point are looking to different things. But I think where the church can speak into is recognising that, yes, these are crucial issues, but at the end of the day, there is an ultimate authority. And when we make these penultimate concerns, ultimate concerns, I think that that does lead to a division and some of the issues we're seeing mm. uh, at, at the moment. Um, it's What I find fascinating, I don't have the answer, is that there does seem to be, even in different um, Christian groupings, there seems to be similar divisions. Yes. Um, where on other issues, that doesn't seem to be the case. Mm. So it is a very almost a unique phenomenon at, at the moment. Fantastic. Well, Dr Daniel Strange, thank you so much for joining us for Faith in Culture. Thanks, Richard.